everyone. Welcome to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. At this point, we're all well aware that we're in a mass extinction event. Biodiversity is declining at accelerating rates, and it seems harder and harder to put the brakes on this runaway train. In the face of climate change, habitat loss, invasive species, chytrid fungus, and more, amphibians are having the toughest go in recent years. The IUCN, or the International Union for Conservation of Nature, states that 40% of all amphibians are threatened with extinction. That's freaking nuts! Clearly, most species in this highly important group will disappear if we don't intervene. And luckily for Australia's amphibians and reptiles, one man and his team are working diligently to save and reintroduce species back into the wild. In this episode, I'm chatting with Michael McFadden, reintroduction biologist and head of the Herptofauna Department at the Taronga Zoo in Sydney, Australia. For years, Michael has been rescuing, propagating, and reintroducing endangered amphibian and reptile species back into the Australian bush. His work is as rewarding as it is difficult, and he shares his many years of experiences with us. All the highs, lows, and surprises. Stick around until the end of the episode to hear this week's question. Send me your answer anywhere you'd like to chat. DM me on Instagram, at Rewildology. Hit me up on the website, Rewildology.com. Or go to the Rewildologist Facebook group. Any of them. I love connecting and am excited to read your answers. All right, friends. On to today's show with Michael. Awesome. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. So excited to just dive in deep into the subject that I know literally nothing about. So you're going to teach me so much today. Can't wait to get in. But first, I have to ask, since I'm halfway across the world, as we all know, we're recording this on what? Well, it's August 25th for you. It's August 24th for me, 2021, and COVID is getting weird again. What is going on in Australia? How are things for you guys? I would love to just hear how my friends abroad are dealing with times right now. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Over here, you're right. We're, we're a day ahead and it's seven o'clock in the morning over here. So a little bit earlier in the morning. <laughs> and, and things are going all right. We, 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 are, we were quite lucky over the last year with, with COVID. So, so our government's been kind of quite lucky to keep it mostly out of the country. And we've been kind of living pretty freely for the most part. But but more recently with the Delta variant, it's it's got in and within our state, we're getting up to maybe, I don't know, about 800 or so cases a day at the moment. So so it's it has started to take off over here. And we've been in Sydney in lockdown for the last two months uh, now. So only leaving the house for essential purposes or essential work. And uh, it looks like that'll probably continue for maybe the next month or so until they get the vaccination rates up. I think our, our vaccination rates are a little bit slower than the rest of the world for the most part. So they're getting those up at the moment. And once that happens, hopefully things can be a little bit more freer. Mm, that's good. And are you running into like the same thing about just people being against the vaccine? I mean, I'm definitely seeing this as like a pretty worldwide thing. Is that is that why vaccination rates are so low? Yeah, or well, I think they were low because our country was slow to purchase enough vaccines. So oh. they didn't actually rolling them out. And that's really only taken off over the last two months now. 
So we're a bit slower in there and you got one type of vaccine that wasn't recommended for younger people initially. And then now they've said that it is and they've expanded out with a couple of other vaccines. So so it's it's really taking off now and uptakes increasing. I got my second jab yesterday. Uh, so so I'm, I'm fully done now. And you do it and you feel okay. You're like chatting. I know so many people that are so sick after their second dose. <laughs> I know. A few of my friends have come down that way too. No, I'm, I'm totally good. I, I can't lift my left arm above my head. <laughs> Oh my gosh, like I completely yes, me too, me too. I was so sore that I was like, okay, work it out, work it out, work it out. You know, trying to like do it all the rubbing. I'm like, this is worse than tetanus. Like, goodness gracious. <laughs> you do feel it. You definitely do feel it. Oh yeah, no, I completely agree. Oh, good. Thanks for exploring that with me because I mean, just all of us across the world, it's just, you just don't know what's going on and you don't know what is the headlines say one thing and then something else says another, but I was just as a friend on the ground, like, how's it actually going? Yeah. Well, for, for the most part, and most states are good. Most states are living pretty freely and, and doing fine. It's only our state of New South Wales, kind of where Sydney is, which, which is higher rates at the moment is in lockdown. But for me, at least I'm still at work every day looking after the animals here and it's a good thing at the time of year. So for us, unlike you guys, it's winter time over here at the moment. So I wouldn't be able to get to any field sites at the moment because of the lockdown. But hopefully by the time it starts warming up over here, that'll be over and we'll have free access out, out to the field again, which is good. So the timing, the timing probably works in okay if you're ever going to have a lockdown. Yeah, that makes total sense because as I let's might as well just start getting on into it because the critters that you love don't like cold weather. So no, they don't. <laughs> they are not made to thrive in cold weather. So yes. So just like exploring your history and what you do and stuff. So you supervise the herpetofauna department, correct? At the Taronga Zoo in Sydney, which is so fun to say herpetofauna department. So <laughs> And also, you are big into reintroduction biology, which freaking so cool. I don't know anything about it. So tell me, what do you do and how do you go about doing it? Yeah, sure. So, so as you said, I, I supervise the, the herpetofauna department. So, and for those people that, that aren't aware, that's the reptiles and amphibians. So, so my role is, I guess, overseeing the staff and the collection of the reptile and amphibian department at Taronga Zoo which includes our collection animals, our reptile house, and all the animals we have on display and educational purposes for the, for the people. But the main part of my role, I guess, these days is overseeing conservation programs. So in, in our department alone, in the reptile amphibian department, we have programs for seven species that are either critically endangered or extinct in the wild. Uh, and for each of those species, and I can talk a little bit more about some of those species soon, but it, for each of those species, we have, uh, I guess, a large insurance colony. So a large genetically managed insurance colony that we have for the purpose of breeding for research and reintroduction purposes. So as you said, reintroduction, that's a big part of what we do here and a big part of, for those species, trying to really bolster populations in the wild or actually reestablish populations in the wild from where they disappeared. Hmm. And how do you select your species? Yeah, no, that's a good question. With, with any conservation kind of area, resources are quite limited, so selecting species is really important for us based on really the threat status of the species. So if, if they're not going to get through without assistance and also species that are kind of within our region of Australia. So with amphibian conservation programs in Australia, most of them being undertaken have been undertaken by zoos in the region that that, that species is native to. So 
That way we can work quite closely with our state wildlife agency. We can get into the field and undertake the field components. So typically for us, species that are critically endangered or extinct in the wild or, and just about to be extinct in the wild, that's how we've gotten into them. So there's, there's a couple of different examples. Like there's, there's one program that we only started in late 2019. And the reason for it, there's a species called the Buralong frog. And the Buralong frog, it's found, on, it's found in the western slopes of the Great Dividing Range, our mountain range, which I say mountain range, it kind of doesn't count as mountains to you guys <laughs> over. It's kind of like little hills. <laughs> That's not, we're a pretty flat, pretty flat country. But they're found on the western slopes of the Great Dividing Range and they live in these rocky streams. And back in 2019, we're at kind of the tail end of one of the worst droughts we've ever experienced here in Australia. And, and the, a lot of the rivers and creeks that had permanently had water in it forever were drying up. And this species only lives for a few years and it was just about to disappear from the northern part of its range. Uh, and the genetic work undertaken so far on the species has indicated that in the northern part of its range, it could have been a separate species for those in the central and southern parts of its range. Wow. So it's, it's pretty, I guess, a pretty dodgy time for the species and, and, and that northern, those northern populations. And there's a local cons- environmental consultant in the area, Phil Sparks, and he'd gone out there and done surveys and he wasn't finding them. He could only find 30, 30-odd frogs, 35 frogs. So he raised the alarm. So we quickly went out there and undertook a bit of a, I guess, a salvage mission to collect what we could. Um, because if the drought persisted for another kind of month or two, there's every chance we could have potentially lost that that northern species. So over a, over a few day period, a couple of us from Taronga Zoo, from the Australian Museum, from our local state wildlife agency, and the, that environmental consultant went up into the field and scoured many rivers and creeks that were totally dry, looking for deeper holes just for any skerrick of moisture that the frogs could be along. And we ended up collecting 60 frogs. And since then, a couple of small populations have been found to persist after the drought. But for this species, they only lived for two to three years and they had two to three years of drought. So there was no, kind of no reproduction occurring uh, at those sites. And so far, a, cu- a couple of small populations have been found and they've been found where there's natural springs. So there's water coming up out of the ground. So they are able to kind of last out the drought, but it appears lots of local populations have gone extinct. So that's kind of how we selected that species. It was kind of a and need to do if we don't act now uh they're potentially gone so, mm-hmm. so get on the ground and set something up straight away and we've just finished building a, a new facility for them too so they're in there and hopefully in the next month or so we'll have them breeding wow wow so I, i'm sorry if you already said but how many species do you have in your reintroduction um program and what are some more examples are they all amphibians do you also have some reptiles are they all australian but let's go more into the co- yeah. your collection of the whole yeah. program. Definitely, definitely. Well, there's, there's seven species, four amphibians, two are lizards, and one's a turtle species. Oh. So with the amphibian species, that's what I focus a lot of, like when I'm in the field doing work on any species, it's with the amphibians. And we've got a couple of species that are quite brightly coloured. And if there's any listeners listening to this, have a little look at southern corroboree frog or northern corroboree frog. They're bright yellow and black species. They're very iconic. They're only about two and a half centimetres in, in length, so, so quite a small frog, but bright yellow and black stripes. So kind of similar to the poison dart frogs that you'd experience in Central and, and South America. And unfortunately, the like the southern crabby frog now, we haven't had a wild, truly wild red nest in the wild since 2012. So prior to that, we established this big insurance colony. It's based at a couple of zoos, like Taronga Zoo and Melbourne Zoo. 
and we bring them up and we're doing reintroductions to various sites in the wild and, and they're actually returning in small numbers at those sites and, and producing eggs. But in truly wild sites where we've never done an actual reintroduction, that they've that they've pretty much disappeared. So, so they're critically, critically endangered, their class does. Uh, and the main thing affecting those guys and a couple of the other species we work with frogs is something called chytrid fungus mm. um, disease, which it's in the US, it's in uh, Australia. It's caused kind of devastation throughout Costa Rica and Panama as it's moved through. In Australia, we've lost six species due to chytrid fungus. One of them in particular was, uh, or two of them, amazing species called gastric brooding frogs. Uh, and they're a frog species that, uh, that the male then plex the female, the female would lay the eggs, the male would fertilise them. She'd then turn around and swallow them. Uh, and they'd release a hormone that shut off her digestive system. And then over the next six to eight weeks, those eggs would develop into tadpoles and develop into the frogs in the stomach of the mum. Uh, and then she'd propulsively vomit up all these little babies, uh, little, little small frogs after six or eight weeks. So it's... Totally amazing reproductive strategy. And there's no other species in the world that do it. And we, we now believe that there's different medicinal purposes that could have been kind of learned from how they can shut off their digestive enzymes so quickly. But however, the southern gastric brooding frog went extinct in 1981. And then in 1984, a northern species was found, kind of many hundreds of kilometres or many hundreds of miles to the north. But unfortunately, that species disappeared in 1985. And that was kind of around the time in Australia that we started having... Uh, mass amphibian declines and losses and it was soon after chytrid fungus arrived in the country so it's wiped out six species at least and there's maybe five or six that are kind of right on the brink at the moment and three of those are in the focus of our programs here at Toronto Zoo. The corroboree frogs are probably the most distinctive ones that, that if you google that you'll find quite a bit of information on that and they're ones that we're breeding for release for the wild and we focused on those species we knew without human intervention they were gone and there's another species of frog there too, the yellow-spotted bell frog. And that species was thought to have gone extinct when Kitra first arrived in 1979. It was thought to have disappeared. And then in 2009, on one small farming property uh, on a three-kilometre or a couple-of-mile stretch of creek line, a small population was rediscovered. And they were living there with Kitra fungus, and there was only about 100 or so individuals remaining. And soon after... They were rediscovered, and the person who went out there to confirm it was the species, his name is Dr. David Hunter, and he's someone from our state wildlife agency who we, we work with on all of our programs. He's an amazing amphibian biologist. Uh, he rang up the following day to ask if we've got space to, to set up a program for that species and because we, to collect some tadpoles effectively as insurance in case anything happens because it was one small stretch of creek line. And, and sure enough, we did. We set up a set up a, a, a room at the time, just a quarantine isolation room that we could put them in. And we collected only 14 or 15 tadpoles. We we focused on tadpoles because we didn't want to touch any of the adult frogs in this population because they've been hanging in there somehow for 30 years. And we, we didn't want to risk kind of doing anything that could tip that balance. And we collected a small number, but then Unfortunately for that species, we had a La Nina weather pattern hit. And so that means over here it's colder, colder summers, colder, wetter summers, which sounds great for frogs and it is for many frogs. But in, in a chytrid fungus kind of scenario, it's perfect for chytrid fungus. So during both of those years, we had higher adult mortality. So chytrid really kind of expanded in that population. We had total failed recruitment. So there was big flood events in late December, which over here in Australia is kind of the start of our summer, but that's when all of these, this frog, who's mostly a pond breeder, who breeds in this kind of still to a very slow moving creek line, it turned into a two meter torrent. And it was a time when all the all the eggs and tadpoles were in the system already and none had been amorphosed into frogs. So effectively, churned them out like a washing machine and, and kind of 
stripped out the aquatic vegetation and we didn't see any recruitment for a couple of years. And as a result of the high adult mortality, failed recruitment, that population disappeared. So as far as we knew, they were extinct in the wild again. And fortunately, we had a small population here at the zoo. There's a little bit of pressure on because they disappeared in 2000. I think 15 or 14 was the last frog seen. And we didn't start breeding them to 2017. So there's a couple of years there where it was a little bit, if we don't breed these things somehow soon, they're going to go extinct. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, the pressure, the pressure. <laughs> 100%. It's one of those things we'll try and absolutely everything, trying different facilities, building different facilities, building different aviaries, trying to get and going. Eventually, we did, and we've had successful breeding at each year since. So, we've released a couple of thousand frogs now at a couple of sites, and we looked at, we're going to look at expanding that and doing some kind of various experimental reintroductions to try to, to try to reestablish a couple of populations of that species again. Mm, it's incredible. Look about our frogs. Oh my gosh. So when, so what factors go into play into deciding when it's time to reintroduce uh, a population back into the wild? What like checklist has to be done before that can, that big event, the whole purpose of the whole thing can happen? Yeah, yeah no, I, I guess the first thing, I guess there's a couple of factors. One is to be able to breed them and produce enough offspring. So we need to retain what we can to maintain our the genetic stability of our population. And once we can produce a surplus enough offspring, that at least gives us the capacity to make that choice to, to, to release. And then after that, it's it's really looking at the threats in the wild, looking at whether or not we think they can reestablish in those areas. So with these species, chytrid fungus is one of those primary threats. And unfortunately, we're never going to remove chytrid fungus from the wild. It's one of those things that's, that's, that's here to stay, probably like COVID will be. That's one of those things that's it's here to stay. We, we can't get rid of chytrid fungus in, in some areas. So this the chytrid fungus, some species it drives to extinction or it, it's kind of really heavily impacts on. Other species, it doesn't seem to impact really at all. Mm. So the species of frog that can carry it on their skin, they shed loads of spores and they act as a, a reservoir host effectively. So they, they live in those ponds shedding spores. So some of your endangered species are just constantly exposed to those and, and find it difficult to come back. So for us, in terms of reintroductions, we plan them and each one's planned in such a way there's a good experimental design to make sure we can learn from it. So for the yellow spotted bell frogs, we knew they'd existed at that site for 30 years until the Lemina. So we figured initially if we can release them in that vicinity, there may be something about that river system or that creek system that's allowed them to, to, to persist. Like salinity levels were a little bit higher there, which isn't great for chytrid uh, and a couple other things. For corroboree frogs, we're trialing a whole range of different techniques. So for, for the southern corroboree frog, we're, we're trialing release into, into natural sites, uh, releasing eggs into artificial pools that have been created. And this is the national park. It's in Kosciuszko National Park, which is our highest elevation kind of area of Australia. It's where our highest mountain is, once again. A big what hill. is the elevation? The top of Kosciuszko is probably just over 2,000 metres. Oh, okay. I mean, that's solid. That's yeah. about the elevation here of Denver. Yeah. Okay. There you go. It's kind of, yeah. our highest highest points in the country. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the crawly frogs are they maybe thirteen hundred to seventeen hundred and fifty meters elevation, which yeah, maybe about, from about four thousand feet up. Um, they they found that, and they're under like for us at the moment they're under a layer of snow. So so, so they're a cold adapted frog. They're under a layer of snow during the That's winter. That's so cool. Yeah. 
I think that's so cool yeah. to help species do that. <laughs> it's amazing. It's one of those things we, we don't know whether they can freeze solid, but I'm sure some of our other Australian species ha- have the capability, like some of those up, up north, like the, the, the wood frog from the Arctic region. Yeah, the boreal toad, is that what it's called? Um, yeah, yeah. Some of those, some of those suckers just really <laughs> freeze so solid. Cut, cut them on a rock. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. We have, we haven't tested it on a crawfish rock. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be hesitant to try. I'm just uh, visualizing but, it. That's hilarious. Like, are you rock solid? <laughs> freeze it, tap, and they break, and you're like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> that was an accident. Yep. <laughs> yeah, for, and for, for species like that, it's pretty much functionally extinct in the wild. Oh, I wouldn't want to test it. No. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be interesting. It's, it's, it's amazing. They're up at that really high elevation. And yeah, we've we've created artificial pools in, in, in the wild to release eggs into abnormal wild sites. Because one of the there's a couple of different strategies we're looking at. One of them is to try to keep them persistent in, in their wild sites. Because in Australia, there's a few species now that suffered hugely from chytrophungus, crashed, become critically endangered but have now plateaued or started to bounce back. And there's some frog species that are starting to bounce back and whether or not they're evolving kind of genetic immunity to chytrophungus, whether or not other things are being selected for, like, for example, the, the flora on the frog's skin, like there's some bacteria on the frog's skin that, that inhibits growth of chytrophungus. And some species may be kind of evolving to develop more of that fungus in their skin, like the survivors and breeding. And, and so there's, a, there's a couple of different reasons they might be bouncing back, but some frogs are bouncing back. And for corroboree frogs, they live for... Kind of, they live for over ten years, but but they 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 take three to four years to hit sexual maturity, mm-hmm. and they're impulse. So it's a, and they only have thirty odd eggs. So evolution's a bit of a slow process in a species that has kind of few eggs and long maturity cycles, so long generation lengths. So so we're trying to keep them persistent at some wild sites, even those that have chytrid fungus, to see whether or not over time and releasing a whole genetic kind of broad population at those sites, and then kind of taking eggs that are bred at those sites and reintroducing them just to see if we can help them evolve natural resistance to chytrophungus. Whereas some of our other uh, efforts with that species have been working with the National Parks and Wildlife Service over here and our state wildlife agency created big artificial, I guess, bog systems in that national park. So big fenced enclosures to keep out other frog species that may carry chytrophungus. And, and by those, I'm, I'm talking maybe 100 foot long enclosures, so big kind of fenced enclosures created artificial bog systems within them. And we've been releasing eggs and small frogs out into those systems in the national park. And that's got the kind of the opposite aim. So out there, they kind of act as extra ex-situ colonies or extra captive colonies. They're in the national park. They get exposed to natural UV, have natural food sources, uh, natural climatic conditions and everything, but they're kept in, in an environment free of chytrid fungus. Uh, and then other strategies we're looking at, we've recently just got a successful grant up with the University of Melbourne and we're going to be looking with corroboree frogs to look at their their genomics and and whether or not they have any level of chytrid uh, resistance to chytrid fungus and whether or not we can select the genes or complexes of genes that that afford them resistance and selectively breed for that as well for release to the wild. So there's a few different strategies in species like that. And then with northern corroboree frogs, we're, we're trialling different things like we're releasing eggs and tadpoles, juvenile frogs, so metamorph frogs to one-year-old frogs and adult frogs just to determine what the best strategy is for reintroduction to build populations quicker and so forth. So there's a whole range of different experimental kind of reintroduction techniques where what we're trialing, but usually we try to kind of abate the threat as much as we can in the field. So select sites that are less suitable for chytrophungus, select sites that the frogs have the best chance at, or in an environment we're kicking free of the fungus as well. So 
In terms of when it comes to reintroduction, we like to, I guess, start them as soon as we can with certain species because the more you do, the more you learn. And it's one of those things that you could hold off because chytrid fungus is still present in the wild, but you're not going to learn anything that way even any chance of reestablishing that species through extra generations in captivity um, is going to be reduced over time. So we like to try to kind of have a dynamic program where we're kind of abating what we can in the wild and start reintroductions early to, to, to reestablish populations or to keep them persistent out there. Mm. Yeah. So just, just to really understand all the players in this, because uh, one of my biggest questions as well was looking at the genomics of this. So since it is a fungus that's killing them, they're just through natural evolution, if, assuming species isn't wiped out, there are going to be individuals that are hopefully resistant in some way, shape, or form. And does it so does it sound like the University of Melbourne, they're actually going to be doing experiments to see if any individuals do have some sort of resistance and going from there? So, or do, is that something that you'll be doing or is it more in like a university setting that that research is going to be conducted? Yeah, no, it, it'll be at the university. So, so, so uh, Taronga Zoo and Melbourne Zoo will produce the, the offspring required. We have the insurance colonies and, and we'll be working with Melbourne, the University of Melbourne uh, to do the work. So Lee Skerritt and Lee Berger are the two professors down there at the at the university and they've done a lot of work on chytrid fungus since, since um, the initial 1998 kind of, discovery of the species. Uh, Lee Berger was one of, one of the people working on that discovery at the time. Uh, she's done some amazing work on, on fungus, and we've worked quite closely with them now for oh, over a decade. We've done some of that work, so preliminary work. We've, we've tried to immunise frogs. We've, we've done work on innate immunity to fungus. so collecting alpine tree frogs, eggs from populations that are exposed and populations that uh, have been exposed for 30 years to chytrid and those that haven't been exposed yet to determine whether or not they're developing uh, immunity. And some of the things they looked at were the metabolomics and proteomics and transcriptomics. Admittedly, I couldn't explain those to you. They go over my head. <laughs> uh, I, I may be an author on, co-author on some of the papers, but, but, but that, aspect it, that aspect of it, uh, I, I don't understand in full depth. And MHC. But we've been working with them quite closely for a number of years now including some preliminary studies already on crop reef rocks. So this will expand upon that on a larger scale and, and see if we can identify that because it's one of those things in the future, I think it will be selecting for resistance or even biotechnology. Um, we, we really don't know yet. We kind of have to see if we can identify kind of those genes and complexes of genes and sequencing the genomes of the species to, to really work out whether or not there is immunity within that species. So crop reef frogs in particular is one of those highly susceptible species. We have others that have crashed and have started to come back. So they're probably good ones to look at too, to determine how, by what technique they're coming back, whether it is um, kind of just like an immune system response or whether it's a kind of a, like bacterial flora on the skin or, 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 or kind of even there's, there's one researcher in Australia, Dr. Ben Shield, he's done some work on the alpine tree frogs once again. And he looked at, looked at their life history stage and, and looked back at museum specimens prior to, prior to chytrid fungus and found that, they're maturing quicker. So if species are able to mature a year quicker or a year or two quicker, it takes out kind of a year or two of potential mortality from chytrid fungus prior to reproducing. So by shortening their lifespan, they're able to kind of keep populations persistent. So there's a whole range of ways that it seems that some frogs have adapted to this disease. Hopefully on crappy frogs, we can, we can kind of work that out. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> It's crazy. And disease is one of those threats in the wild, like some of our other species. And I'm happy to chat about those too. Like the turtle we're working on is a disease that pops up all of a sudden. 
but but the lizards we work on is kind of one of your more typical threats for small small animals. It's invasive predators. Invasive predators is one that you can quite try to control to some degree. Disease is one of those ones that's it's a tricky one. And for crawberry frogs, like it's one of those ones in the past where there have been other researchers that are like, why don't you just give up on them? They've gone extinct now in the wild pretty much. Bringing them back, Kitra's always going to be there. And our, our thoughts on it have always been that we, there's so much about this disease we don't know about yet. And in terms of looking at the genetics and looking at resistance, I'm pretty confident and optimistic that in 10, uh, 10 years, maybe too early, <laughs> we'll go 20 to 30 years' time, we'll have good established populations of them back up in the wild. We'll, we'll have been able to work this out. So it's pretty much just holding on to them for the short term just so we can kind of give them that leg up and learn a lot more about the species to be able to kind of or about chytrid fungus and the way they kind of interact with chytrid fungus to be able to get them through and reestablish populations. Oh my gosh, I have so many questions that I'm trying to decide which one to ask. Because <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> oh my god, because you just said something. Now this might be, this might be more of a philosophical question or really diving deep into how you feel or what you think about all of this, but. With what that colleague of yours said to you, this brings up the idea of conservation triage. Like we are giving up resources over here that could be used for something else to save this other species that maybe we should just let go extinct. Since you are in your shoes, how do you feel about that? How do you like go about that? I mean, like this is a massive conversation about like the Northern white rhinos and how they're doing all this artificial insemination into these Southern whites to try to save the species. I mean, like that, that's one example. It's like, should we be spending millions of dollars to save one rhino species when all of them could use that money and help? That's just an you know, example that people might know more about. So how do you feel about it with like your species? Because you probably have to deal with this on a pretty regular basis, I would imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it has been questioned before regarding that. So, so for us, I guess at the zoo, the insurance colony, rather than utilizing conservation funding that would go to, I guess, other threatened species, it's kind of the zoo budgeting and making sure we've got enough funding for these programs. So it's not money that would necessarily go to, to other, like other species in the wild, for example. The zoo does fund a load of a load of field conservation projects and, and various conservation projects worldwide, but it's, it's funding is kind of more allocated to within our uh, life science keeping departments and so forth. So it's not money taken away from other threatened species areas. And for us, in terms of prioritizing the species, we try to do it based on what needs our help the most. So for a vulnerable or an endangered species, there are zoos now working on kind of establishing captive husbandry protocols for some of those species, just in case it ever gets dire being able to bring those into a program and already knowing what to do with them to be able to breed them successfully. But in terms of setting up insurance colonies for species that aren't right on the brink yet, then if, they, if they're not going to be on the brink any time in the next 10 or 20 years, it's probably not necessary for us to focus on those species other than kind of establishing husbandry protocols just because by the time they are in trouble, we'll have kind of gone through many, many generations in captivity so that the inbreeding will start to be creeping in and it'll be generations kind of removed from the wild. So I think for some of those species, it's good to put ourselves in a position where we know we can jump straight in if required, collect founders for, for that, that those species and work on them intensively. But in terms of having long-term populations that aren't going to be utilised for reintroduction purposes and so forth, it's probably not necessary. So for us, we've deemed our resources the best place on species that 
are kind of getting close to the brink that kind of need without our intervention will be gone. And for the species we work with too, so the frog species, the turtles and the lizards, they're not high um, resource species typically. So in one frog container, and by container, it's a kind of a cargo a cargo shipping container. I'm not sure that's what you call them over, over in yeah, the US. Yes, it is. <laughs> yep, awesome. Uh, they're in refrigerated um, shipping containers effectively that have been converted to frog facilities. So they've got refrigeration on it. They're, they're, the full inside's decked out for a frog species but in one of those facilities we can hold kind of three to four hundred crawberry frogs so, so so doing that with something like a rhino would cost many 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 millions of dollars kind of even possibly per year kind of to maintain so many so many animals whereas for a small frog species or a small lizard or a turtle they're much more resource efficient in that in that respect big drain on resources but yeah in terms in terms of those species if we thought that the species we're working on, we can't bring back, or they got to the point where there's no way we're going to bring them back, then we'd have to kind of assess an end, end game strategy in terms of what we're going to do because it's not worth persisting. I shouldn't say it's not worth persisting something. But as you said regarding resources, we could put that to another species. So if there's a species we're just holding indefinitely that we're not going to be able to reintroduce, that that's not our goal. Our goal for all of our species is that, that it's short-term for been able to bolster or rebuild wild populations. So if there's a species to be determined we're never going to be able to bring back, uh, then we'd have to discuss an endpoint kind of for that species so we can focus on other species. But for each of the species we're working on, we haven't got to that point yet because I'm I'm pretty optimistic through some of the, the learnings at the moment that we are going to be able to bring these species back. And based upon some of the work being done around the world, like here in Australia, over there in the US, uh, throughout Central America, we're learning so much more about chytrid fungus and how it operates. And because it's a worldwide problem, we've got scientists worldwide working on the problem too. So each year we're learning more and more about the, the disease. And, and now that we're starting to get more into the kind of biotechnology side of it in terms of learning about the genetics and disease resistance and so forth, I'm pretty confident that we'll have those answers sooner than later as well for, for many of those species to, to be able to bring them back. That must feel pretty good to to have that. Like there is hopefully with so many partners around the world, like there is an not an end in sight, but there is there is a light at the end of the tunnel that you can see. Like the point is all the way over there. And it's like the super small one, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel that as a worldwide community, everyone's coming together to fix. So how long has your reintroduction program been going in Australia? Just curious. Yeah, I guess it depends on the species. So, so Taronga was reintroducing green and golden bell frogs when I started the zoo back from the late 1990s. But that program ended in the early 2000s. But since I've been kind of working on the species that we're working on now, very much varies the species. So for southern crowberry frog and northern crowberry frog, we've been putting eggs in the wild since 2010, I would say. For the yellow spotted bell frog, it's only 2018. For the Buralong frog, we did one trial reintroduction um, when we worked with the southern populations of the species back in 2008, I would say, but not with the northern populations yet. And then for some of our other programs, the reptile reintroduction programs have only really just kicked off in the last few years. And there's, they're kind of quite exciting ones. They're ones I see a lot of kind of potential for reestablishing. So we're not working with chytrid fungus there. There's, there's two kind of programs effectively. One's the Bellinger River turtles. And, and 
that's a species that only lives in the one river system in the north of our state, in northern New South Wales. And there was between two and 4,000 of them that lived in the river system. And then all of a sudden, in 2015, a couple of kayakers found a couple of sick turtles and didn't know what was going on, reported it to the authorities. They came out and had a look, and sure enough, they were pulling out dozens and dozens of dead uh, dead and dying turtles out of that river system. Not oh, my gosh. It, there's a, like a rapid response was was made, and, and they were finding these turtles kind of effectively pulling out hundreds of turtles with big, bulgy eyes, emaciated, lots of lots of problems with it, and they're having a hundred percent mortality of those individuals are affected too. And and the decline was moving up the river at a few kilometers a day. So, so it was moving upstream and still we don't know how it was transmitted and we didn't know what was causing it at the time. But we we've we've later learned and it's been published now. It's a it's a separate, it's a, a novel disease. They call it Bellinger River virus, which is a type of nidovirus. And still to this day we don't know how it got in the river system. We don't know the mode of transmission. And over a month to a month and a half period, so a fairly short period of time, it effectively almost wiped out the species. So it was, all that was remaining was maybe 150 to maybe 200 juvenile turtles, so very, very young turtles. Almost the total adult population, sub-adult population, was, was, was wiped out in, a, in, in such a short period of time. So going from having a fairly abundant species in that river system to totally gone in that short period, and had it not been noticed, it kind of could have could so easily if something like a turtle had gone undetected for a month and a half and, and we wouldn't be in a position we're in today where we've actually got a firm grounding to be able to bring these guys back. So fortunately from the upstream stretch, they went right up to the very top of their distribution, the very top pools of the river that the turtles found in before the disease got there and collected 16 turtles. Uh, and they went into quarantine for a year at a university in Sydney, uh, Western Sydney University, before coming to Taronga. To, to, to initiate our program. So it gave us time while they're in quarantine to build a new facility for the species. And we collected those 16 turtles. And, and I was a bit nervous initially based on the genetics. They're all collected from the same pool that they might all be kind of related or so forth. But fortunately, and it must be due to the, the movement of the species up and down the river system, when you look at, so, so the, the genetics of our ones have been mapped as well as all the museum specimens and those collected during the decline. And our ones kind of span the full the full length of the kind of the tree of, of the genetics, which which is amazing. I, I don't know. Wow. How and they kind of right spread out throughout the tree, so we captured a lot of genetic diversity in that in that in those upstream couple of pools, which which is which is quite fortunate. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> sixteen uh, individuals. <laughs> That's a bottleneck. Would, <laughs> it, it is a bottleneck, a huge bottleneck, and also since the decline as well, it was only juveniles remaining. But a few years later, we collected. 19 juvenile turtles that tested negative for the virus and they've gone to another facility called Symbio Wildlife Park just so we can split our risks. If something happens to our population, then effectively a good chunk of the species remaining is gone. So if they're at Symbio Wildlife Park, if something goes wrong, theirs aren't ready to breed just yet because they're young ones and turtles take forever to mature, but they're down there kind <laughs> of ready to go for future years. It's one of those programs that here it's been it's been really, really successful. So so when we collected them, there was nine males and seven females, of which five females were mature. And over the first four years they were here, four of those five females produced eggs every year. So we had like, there's one female, so even up until this point now, has never produced a clutch of eggs. And we don't know why. She she develops large follicles every season and they recede every season. And we did CT scans and everything. And it's shown she's had some previous trauma, which could impact on her ability to breed. But taking her out of the equation... Every mature turtle we have 
has bred every year, which has put us in a really good position to to start doing trial reintroductions. Uh, and, and these have been under, uh, undertaken now for a few years. So in November 2018, we released the first batch of juvenile turtles, 10 turtles that were just over a year and a half of age with little radio transmitters on their back. And nine of those are still going now. So a few years later, they're still surviving really well. No sign of the virus just yet. So we don't know whether or not the virus has effectively nearly burnt itself out after it wiped through that population or whether it's there in such low numbers that we're not detecting it at the moment. But we released 10 turtles in November 18. We released another 10 in November 19. And then we released 32 last year in November. Uh, and, and the survival rate's been, been huge. But it's been amazing. Uh, we've had only one known death so far. And we've had one droppage transmitter and one transmitter fail. But other than that, they're, they're all persisting and doing really well. So it's one of those programs where at the moment, so we started reintroducing straight away because we figured that the population in the wild, so there's been no natural breed for this species now since 2015. So without reintroducing, there's going to be a big big lag in their kind of life history in the wild. And that could be enough kind of, for, I guess, demographic stochasticity to kind of knock them over eventually. So we've been reintroducing since then. We figured if we reintroduce the turtles, even though as far as we know the virus is still out there, it's not impacting the juveniles uh, so much. So that way, if we release those, we'll be able to learn a little bit about more. Hopefully, we get high survival rates, but if we don't, we'll also learn more about the transmission and how the virus is, is acting. Unfortunately, the latter hasn't been the case. It's, it's been high survival and we're able to follow the species and really get the translocation kind of protocol down pat. And Give it another couple of years. Once our first F1 turtles are mature, we'll have a much larger breeding population to produce from, and hopefully we can produce 150 to 200 turtles a year. And when, if we do that, I'm pretty confident that we can kind of recover this species and, and build the populations back up and have that species kind of persisting back out there again, hopefully in its former numbers. Wow. And what is the target year that they are anticipated to start reproducing in the wild? Uh, oh, for females in the wild, it's typically maybe 10 to 12 years. Okay. Okay. So you still got a while. <laughs> we do. We do have a while. Yeah. So that means the lag in their reproduction in the wild is going to be huge. It's going to be almost a decade of kind of really none or very little reproducing in the wild, which would be enough theoretically, even with natural mortality. Now we know it's probably only 100 or so of those wild individuals still remaining. So it would be enough. I can't say the species would have gone extinct, but there's a very good chance that it, it could have without the existence of being able to bring them ex situ and, and setting up colonies that are kind of genetically managed by Stubbook and, and having really good successful breeding rates so far, which has exceeded our expectations. I was hoping for at least 50% of females per year reproducing, but to have almost all apart from that one, one old girl producing every year has been kind of relief. It's not like that, that bellfrog situation where, They've been gone from the wild for two years and we couldn't breed them. It's straight away they're reproducing. So it's kind of a little bit of relief that we're going to be able to do it. Mm. Oh, that's so exciting. That's so exciting. Which is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and the survival rate. I can't believe the survival rate. I'm, I'm amazed by it. So we're, we're, we're very stoked with that program and how it's going. Mm. Oh, my gosh. We'll definitely have to keep posted on that one for sure. So let's talk about the reptiles. So it sounds like their problem is very different. It's not a disease. It's not a fungus. It is other critters that want to eat them that shouldn't be there. And that's a huge problem worldwide. So how is that being managed? And then your whole program coming into place, because of course you can't reintroduce species if all these invasive species are still there. So how does that whole thing work 
No, no, de- definitely. And, and to, so there's two species in particular we're working on there, two lizard species, and, and they come from an island called Christmas Island. And Christmas Island is found, it's an Australian territory, an Australian island, but it's found off the northwest of Australia. It's actually closer to Indonesia. It's closer to Java than it is to Australia, but it's an Australian island. So it's right out, out there. And there's an endemic fauna on the island. They're, they're kind of, their species are kind of from the Australasian kind of Australian region. So, so they're the same genera of lizards you find in Australia rather than, for example, coming from Southeast Asia, but it's closer up there in, in, in its location. And the species out there are endemics. There's a number of lizard species that are endemic only to Christmas Island. And unfortunately, kind of in the early 2000s, there was big population crashes in those species and they didn't know why. And or they had, I guess, thoughts on why in terms of which invasive predators, but it wasn't really clear. And, and by the time they kind of really got a, a grasp of what's happening with the species, it was kind of almost the getting towards the last minute. So there's a species called the blue-tailed skink and the listless gecko. And, and they're both quite small species. The skink's only maybe four inches long and the gecko's only maybe two to three inches long. So quite a small species. And they'll decline at such a rapid rate that they knew they were going to go extinct in the next few years. So, so in addition to those two species, there was also the forest skink on the island that was suffering the same decline. The coastal skink, which fortunately is on other islands as well, it's not just endemic, and, and the blind snake. And we don't know what happened with the blind snake in terms of, I think only seven or eight specimens have ever been found as that species. So they're quite a cryptic species anyway. It's hard to kind of get a grasp of what's happening there and how they're doing. But the lizards all seem to be going through a, a large crash and the coastal skink species already disappeared. And the forest skink and the lizard gecko and the blue-tailed skink were just about to. So the Parks Australia, they're the kind of the wildlife authorities out there on the island, managing the island. They went out and quickly collected what they could of those species, knowing that there may only be a couple of years left before they disappear. And they collected, I can't tell you the exact numbers, but it was 40 to 50 listers geckos and the same for blue-tailed skinks. Uh, and they were only able to collect three forest skinks. They weren't able to collect any more of those. And unfortunately, as a result of that, that species has now uh, totally disappeared. Those three individuals have died and, and the species is now thought to be extinct. Uh, for the listers gecko and the blue-tailed skink, they are able to breed them up in that first year uh, and double the size of the colony. Uh, which is quite fortunate because by the following year, those species had disappeared from the wild and were extinct in the wild as well. And they'll split half the colony was sent here to Toronto Zoo uh, in Australia under permanent quarantine, and the other half was kept on the island, kept the breeding program on the island. So we were kind of the insurance policy. In case anything goes wrong on the island, they're in two locations. And and the main threat to these guys isn't disease, unlike our other, uh, our turtles and our frogs. The main threat for these guys is two species of invasive uh, two invasive species in particular, the Asian wolf snake uh, and the giant Asian centipede. So two species have been introduced to the island. And unfortunately, both of those species, a wolf snake and the centipede, aren't species you can control easily. But they're, they're ones that, I guess, you look at you look at the brown tree snakes on Guam where the amount of millions and millions and millions of dollars have invested into that and we're still not really any closer to kind of keep controlling those. Trying to control the cryptic snake species and the centipede that's absolutely everywhere is, is really difficult. So unfortunately, and there may be others that think otherwise, I, I think managing those pests on the island, on Christmas Island, it's going to be very difficult to, to near impossible. I'm not sure if an invasive snake species has ever been brought under control. And trying to control a centipede when there's so many endemic and endangered species of crab there, you couldn't put out baits or anything like that that could be utilised that could impact on the native species. So with this program, we've done something a little bit different. 
those two species have built up in large numbers. We've produced many, many hundreds of them over time. So both we've got robust, big, robust insurance colonies here at Tuanga Zoo and on the islands in, in captive breeding facilities. And we've looked at an, the next closest islands to Christmas Island. So just west of Christmas Island is the Cocos and Keeling Island groups. So we had uh, people out there studying those islands, looking at some of the small islands in that chain to look to see what species are naturally found on those islands. And there's no natural reptile species. There's, there's a handful of invasive gecko species that, that are kind of colonised almost every island in the, in the South Pacific and Indian Ocean. But, but um, there's a number of invasive reptile species, but there's no native reptile species. And they're looking at uh, invertebrate species, looking at a whole range of other things to determine the feasibility of us releasing either of these species on, onto one or two of those islands to establish a, a, like a wild population on those islands. Unfortunately, over a number of years, the feasibility studies indicated that, that there's, there's very little kind of endemic invertebrate fauna on those islands that are going to be impacted at all by, by skinkery gecko species. And some habitat rehabilitation work was undertaken on those uh, couple of two islands in particular were selected to, to they thought that the the habitat there was kind of complex enough to maintain populations. Unfortunately, it hasn't meant for a reintroduction of listers gecko because there's invasive geckos all over those islands and and they're kind of hard to control. They're kind of they would be competitors and if not some species also predators of the listers gecko. So we haven't started doing any releases of those yet. But we started doing translocations of blue-tailed skinks. So from, from the colony, half from the Taronga colony, half from the Parks Australia colony, over the last couple of years now, to two islands, Pulu Blan and Pulu Blan um, Matter, uh, on those islands. And so far, the skinks are doing quite well. They're surviving quite well on those islands. They're breeding on those islands. Uh, there's a master's student who's been working on the reintroductions of working on the success of, of like the skinks that are reintroduced and, and what happens post-release. There's also a master's student also looking at the islands to see what, what change having skinks onto the islands will do to those islands in terms of invertebrates and other things as well. Just to make sure we, we, want, it, we want it to be kind of almost pretty certain that we're not going to impact anything else by releasing skinks onto those islands. If anything, it probably will benefit some of the species on those islands due to the habitat kind of restoration work, clearing out some of the, the weed matter and and kind of improving the habitat on those islands. So so we're pretty optimistic that we'll have wild populations of blue-tailed skinks again on those islands, which, which is really good. For listers geckos, it's one we're still working on. But to ever reintroduce them back to Christmas Island, I think is, is going to be a challenge. And they have been doing translocations on Christmas Island, but into predator-free enclosures, so big fenced enclosures on the island where they've they've baited to, to remove all centipedes and they've collected all the the wolf snakes and and monitor those kind of enclosure areas and they're quite large enclosures once again i'd say they're at least 100 feet kind of long uh, 100 feet wide and they've been reintroducing the blue tail skinks and listers geckos into those enclosures but it's in relatively small they're large enclosures but it's still kind of a contained population that's at risk of of something going wrong it's similar to our corroboree frogs in our disease-free field enclosures it's it's one of those things it's a it's a it's a measure to ensure we have populations out there but it's one of those things that a bushfire, uh, a hurricane, something like that could could come in the future and and potentially take it out. So a long term option, if we get them onto some of these islands, we'll have populations, self sustainable populations in the wild again. That would be amazing. Is there any guesses on how those invasive species were introduced? It's pretty close to Java in terms of where, where the island is positioned. Like it's not right on the doorstep. It's pretty close, and and there, there is boat transport between the islands. So. That those species 
Centipedes and Asian wolf snake are, are excellent little stowaways. Like the centipedes are juveniles are quite small. Uh, wolf snakes, Asian wolf snakes can get into anything. They're, they're, they're one of those small cryptic kind of nocturnal snakes that that any crate or something like that they could have got into. So they've probably got over there just in, in, inadvertently. It would have been accidentally kind of on. on. And, and the other species I failed to mention too on the, on Christmas Island is yellow crazy ants, uh, which have built up and formed super colonies and and. <laughs> Kind of wipe out everything. I mean, a name like Yellow Crazy Ant? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, nuts. It's, it, it is nuts. I'm not sure if you've ever seen the, the Attenborough documentaries where it shows the great migrations. And you see this, there's one island where there's this big migration of red crabs that move yeah. across. That's on Christmas Island. And Yellow Crazy Ants have had a massive impact on those. Oh, uh, oh those are this bit like acid into their eyes? Yeah. That's exactly oh, right. my gosh. I know exactly what you're talking about. I kind of yeah, know David right. Attenborough documentaries a little too well, but I know what you're <laughs> talking about. Yeah, and like, yeah. like going blind and like they can't make it to the water to shed their eggs and breed. And oh my God, you're so right. It's horrendous, isn't it? Yes. It's horrendous. It looks terrible. Um, <laughs> but they're, 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 all over, they're all over that island too. And, and they could be impacting on the stinks and the geckos too, or they could be having indirect effects by, by kind of reducing crab population numbers. It changes kind of, I guess, the dynamics of the forest floor in terms of the breakdown of leaf matter and that kind of thing. So indirectly, they could be affecting the, the invertebrate diversity, which would then impact on the skink and the gecko. But based on based on the wave of declines and where they moved, it, it looks like it's more coincidental, like not coincidental, more kind of aligned, correlated with the, the spread of the Asian wolf snake. And we know that the centipedes can impact on the, the juveniles and eggs of those species as well. So probably a combination of the few that, that have done it. But fortunately, we do have them set up in insurance colonies and we are undertaking work at the moment to re-establish them. And hopefully, if, if they do re-establish on those couple of islands and a couple more uh, and they build up in good numbers and they're breeding sustainably on those islands, then, then there may not be a need for us to have an insurance population anymore. And that's kind of that's, that's the long-term aim, that, that we work with the species, build it up to a point where it doesn't need any assistance, close it down and start on the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because unfortunately, there's always going to be a next one. And, and our current global climate on the way things are going. Yeah, it's always ships. Ships just bring everything to islands and ruin everything. <laughs> so many different invasive species have been brought. I mean, for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, ships have been bringing things that shouldn't belong to places around the world. <laughs> they do. They do. Both both marine and terrestrial. It's, yes. It's- yeah, well, the zoo's been involved in another conservation project that, that I haven't been directly involved in on an island called Lord Howe Island, which is off the coast of New South Wales, probably a few hours, or a couple of hours off the coast of New South Wales, uh, the state that I'm in, where rats have kind of built up in large numbers over the island. And there's a couple of reptile species there that are in quite low numbers, but the birds, there's something called a Lord Howe, Lord Howe Island wood hen and, a, and Lord Howe Island currawong, and their numbers were declining quite substantially and and uh Taronga Zoo with our partners, the State Wildlife Agency who coordinated the whole program, did an island-wide rat eradication program, which is absolutely huge. You have a you have a look on the map at some stage at Lord Howe Island, some photos, a beautiful island. It looks quite large and really large island, but somehow they were able to kind of do a targeted baiting campaign and and, and brought as far as I know, there's no rats on the island anymore. They've they've eradicated rats off the island. And to do so in the short term, we had a team of seven to eight Taronga Zoo staff on the island there for, for about a year. They set up large aviaries and brought the, wood, uh, the Lord Howe Island woodhens into captivity for that period and the currawongs into captivity for that period. 
uh, after a large kind of capture campaign just to make sure they wouldn't target any of the baits because they're in such low numbers. And then once the once the rat eradication was done, they released those animals back to their point of capture. And, and to my knowledge, they're actually doing quite well. And there's a lot of kind of animal diversity and stuff now, snails and other things that, that they weren't seeing prior to the rat eradication. So it's one of those things, as you said, ships take things everywhere. And rats are one of those classic examples that have got to everywhere. Um, yes. Ships back in the day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The Galapagos Islands, like, you know, they've been dealing with a lot. There's like so many, like, I mean, everything from cats to goats to rats. I mean, there's just so many species that are very, very good at being just generalists that can eat anything. They're like, oh, a new island. Yes, I will find a way. And <laughs> they've just devastated a lot of areas. Hawaii deals with a lot of that. I mean, Australia is huge. I mean, it's a whole continent, but still, you're technically an island as well. And so it's definitely yeah, yeah. a thing there too. And then all the islands around, it's, it's, it's a huge issue just with how connected we are. Things just hop on ships and just being a generalist that they are, they can take out a lot of wildlife, unfortunately. A hundred percent. Especially birds. Birds. Yeah. 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 New Zealand are actually doing a really good job doing rat eradications off small islands and, and reestablishing bird species. They, they do a lot of reintroduction biology in New Zealand. And, and they kind of, I think they lead the way on kind of rat eradication and small islands kind of eradicating pests. They've done a lot of good work over there and published a lot of good studies. And, and they move a lot of those little bird species around onto kind of offshore islands. They've done it with Tuatara as well, which is a, a reptile species and a few, other, a few other beasts, which is pretty amazing. Wow. Maybe they'll figure out your centipede problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about a centipede that is big enough to eat a gecko. I'm just... <laughs> wouldn't be pleasant <laughs> i mean i'm fine with snakes i mean yeah, it's, it's an invasive species but like i don't know there's something about centipedes that i mean i'm a, i'm i'm a biologist but there's still some critters that give me the heebie-jeebies <laughs> you know? i think we've all got those <laughs> yeah exactly just think about a centipede that can eat something that big just black black yeah Hopefully New Zealand figures it out. So hopefully somebody, I'm sure there's some amazing research being done on how maybe PhD students or master's students that are trying to figure out how to possibly bring those critters back. Hopefully take those ones out, bring the good ones back. Hopefully. Because Christmas Island, I mean, yeah, there's like a whole bunch of documentaries about them. You know, the big migration of the red crabs. Like we can't lose this biodiversity and these amazing natural wildlife phenomena like that one. Uh -huh. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And beautiful looking island. So I, I haven't actually got there myself. Uh, a few of my staff have gone, like reintroductions. But I haven't actually got there myself. I'll have to one day to, to, to look at it in person. Yes, next time. Like, okay, I'm getting this trip. <laughs> oh, is it beautiful tropical island? I see the photos when they come back. The snorkeling looks amazing. It, it's uh, <laughs> Whereas I'm doing 15K hike, 15 kilometer hikes down in the mountains looking for frogs. <laughs> I'll get down there at some stage for sure. And so I, my next question, we, we briefly touched on it, but I would love to go more in depth. How do you manage genetics? How do you not have these species go through complete bottlenecks when you're grabbing so few individuals out of the wild just because that's all that's left? Yeah, no, definitely. It's a good point. And sometimes, so, so each of the species you work with is genetically managed uh, to maximize retaining the genetic diversity we got. And for some species, unfortunately, there's very little genetic diversity when we've collected, like the yellow spotted bell frogs that have been hanging onto that creek line there for 30 years after the, 
it disappeared from everywhere else. And no doubt would have gone through many, many, many generations at that site. So the genetic diversity there wasn't huge. We, we do take genetic samples. So, so for example, the recently we collected those Burulong frogs we collected last in December 2019. We took genetic samples from all of those. So that way we can have a look at their relatedness to, to help guide the 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 breeding program in terms of who's a pair with who. Uh, so we do we do look at the genetics as much as possible to to, to see who who's already related to who when coming in from the wild. But then we manage them in different ways. So for the Burulong frogs and the yellow spotted bell frogs, as an example, and the listless gecko and the Bellinger river turtle. So those four species we breed in pairs. So, so I'm trying to think of all the ones we breed in pairs. <laughs> we breed those ones in pairs. So, so we, we we utilize a stub book. Uh, so we enter all their information to a stub book uh, and then that selects who who breeds with who based on their mean kinship and how closely related they are to each other. So it's just, I guess, small population management to try to maximize retaining genetic diversity we have there. For other species, the two crawberry frog species and the blue-tailed skink, we breed those in groups. So we use a different system called maximum avoidance of inbreeding where it's kind of like a round-robin system where you have just a, a, I guess, a simple system starting with kind of eight, eight unrelated groups. So four un, four groups of males that are unrelated to any of the females or any of the other males and four groups of females that are unrelated to any of the others. We breed those for a generation. We keep the offspring back. And then the next generation, we move the females from that one tank to the male offspring from the next tank. And if we do that for crawberry frogs, we've worked out we'll get at least 30 years without any inbreeding because they have a fairly long generation span. So we try to extend the generation span even though they can be mature at three or four years, we tend not to retain the offspring at that three or four year mark because if we do the generation, we'll go through more generations in a shorter period of time. So we try to extend the generation span out a bit. We want to make sure we collect the genetics for the next the next generation before we've lost any of those founders because otherwise we are losing genes. But we try to extend the generation span out enough that we, the longer we extend our generations, the, the longer we can keep genetic diversity for. And... and to further kind of manage genetic diversity, this last year we, we started working on cryopreserving sperm from our founder males from each of those species of, of the frogs. Anyway, our rep- we got a reproductive biologist uh, and a geneticist here at Taronga Zoo. So we have Dr. Rebecca Hobbs and and uh, Justine O'Brien working on cryopreserving the sperm of those of the males. Anyway, we can't cryopreserve frog eggs unfortunately yet, same as fish eggs, but, but we can cryopreserve the sperm. So by cryopreserving the, uh, the sperm of all the founder males, hopefully in 10 or 20 years' time, we can put that sperm back into the population. So, so put their genes back into the population kind of down the track so that way we're not just kind of gradually eroding that uh, genetic diversity within the population. If we can biobank enough sperm now, then founders that may not have bred naturally in, in 10 years' time or 20 years' time or whenever we need to, we can insert some of their genes back into the population to keep it kind of... Kind of, as if you're collecting wild mail still, but but you're not. We've just got them kind of in the freezer downstairs here. <laughs> <laughs> Effectively. But, but, but yeah, it, it is a big consideration. And, and we do try to, uh, we get a geneticist here, Dr. Joe Day, and she, she, she's done some work on the Burulong frogs and the yellow spotted bell frogs, looking at the genetic diversity within our populations to work out how related they are to each other and kind of wherever there is any kind of genetic subdivision within populations. Uh, and we're looking at for corroboree frogs doing a large kind of genome and, and genetic survey over the next couple of years of the frogs that all all 
locations holding them to work out uh, where what the genetic diversity is and where we need to focus collecting further founders or further F1 representatives from. Nice. I don't know why I just had a memory. You know, you know how this field, do you do some really weird shit in this field? Yeah. I remember. <laughs> I'm a rip talking. Oh, Brooke story time. One of my first internships, I really can't believe I forgot about this. One of my first internships is at the Wilds, which is in Ohio, and it's this amazing 10,000 acre conservation out there. And it's so big that a lot of the animals live wild. And they also have this insanely amazing breeding program with a lot of their species there. But unlike little herps and stuff, we're talking about big like ungulates and stuff. (laughs) I had to help collect a male sample. Oh my God, what species was that? I don't remember. It had hooves. It was big. And you had to like (laughs) stick this thing in its butt to like stimulate him and catch the ejaculate and all in the name of science. (laughs) 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 Oh my God. I totally forgot about this. Oh, what's I love it. I've I've seen videos. Oh my God. I forgot. (laughs) I think I just removed that from my memory that I helped scientists get off a male <laughs> ungulate of some sort i have to i'll have to like look at the species book to figure out what it was but i will never forget that i will never forget that oh yeah what this is what we do michael this is the stuff we do to keep species around <laughs> I, I love it i've seen video back in the day of them doing it with rhino too and they had like a big artificial rhino vagina to be able to stimulate the male to to to, to to catch the yep. spirit, to catch the yeah, I'm glad I work with frogs in that scenario. Um, yeah, <laughs> yep, yep, a, yeah. It's a little sperm collection is a little bit different in our in our field. <laughs> than, than. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't for us. For us, it's a simple that. hormone dose and put a little glass tube up there, Cloaca. <laughs> so, so, is, so they're on a smaller scale. That is way easier. I mean, it was a whole thing. It was a team of us had to like hold the penis <laughs> as like someone else is stimulating him and with a probe and like man yeah, yeah. totally forgot that was a thing <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad those memories have come back to you now <laughs> oh my gosh God, uh, that is so funny okay okay yeah. well we can move on from that little <laughs> awesome so well, there is one very big part of this podcast that we have not dived into, and it would be you and your story. So, like, you've been telling me all these amazing things that you do, but let's go into why. So just tell me about young Michael, like you growing up and how in the world did you get into this field? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, uh, since I can remember, I've been interested in reptiles since I was small go around the backyard trying to catch little garden skinks the little lizards that occupied a garden and I, I lived back in onto bush so i lived in western sydney in a little area back in onto bushland and, and we used to get blue tongue lizards and bearded dragons and occasionally snakes come up into our property just on a on a small kind of quarter acre block so it's just a normal suburban property we'd get snakes like red belly black snakes and eastern brown snakes come into our property which are potentially dangerous species 
and various other things. I was always fascinated about them. So I was, I was always one of those little those kids who borrowed every reptile book in the library numerous times over. You, you looked at the little library card and had my name over and over and over <laughs> trying to learn what I could about them at the time. And I was just always into it. I was always at the bush. Any opportunity I, I had, I was down, down the local bushland looking for snakes and lizards and frogs and that kind of thing. So I think it's one of those ingrained, for a lot of reptile people, it's one of those ingrained things right from an early age. You're kind of just drawn to those animals. And I think I was 11 or maybe 12 when I brought my first red belly black snake home. And that's a, like an elapid snake, which is a, a potentially lethal snake. So it's so, so a dangerous one, kind of on par with probably some of the rattlers over there. I remember bringing, bringing that home, holding that, and my mum's kind of, I would say, displeasure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at seeing me bring that snake home. And, uh, and she was like, my, my mum was Maltese. My dad was Irish. So they're both from kind of islands where you don't have to worry about snakes. And, and, and ne- neither of those were kind of, neither of those were animal people kind of thing. My mum had birds, um, but she certainly wasn't a reptile person. And she, she was scared of them initially, but eventually she came around. So as I was... As I got a little bit older, so when I was 14, 15, I got some pet reptiles and kind of expanded. And soon my living room at home kind of got, we had the TV and the couches, but everywhere else there could be kind of a, an enclosure, display cabinet built and created. There was, there was one of those, there's like a big carpet python next to the TV and another carpet python on the other wall. <laughs> um, my mum was very tolerant. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> That's amazing. Go, mom. <laughs> hey, I reckon well, my, my first snake was a green tree snake, which was a harmless species of snake. And then I got a little children's python, or that was my third snake, a little children's python. And my mom fell in love with that. When I was at school, she actually started to get it out and hold it herself. And eventually she ended up with four little spotted pythons herself in her bedroom. I built a, a snake enclosure rack and and, and with, with four kind of decent sized enclosures for, for, for spotted pythons. And she had four spotted pythons in the room eventually. So, oh my gosh. She, she came around and so I was always into reptiles, always into reptiles from an early age. And that followed on to throughout school. And then I went to university and studied uh, zoology or environmental biology and finished my bachelor's degree. And then I did my honours. And I actually did my honours on a bird species. So uh, a severe lapse uh, in uh, <laughs> dabbled on the, on, the, on the feathered side. Saying that birds are nestled within reptiles kind of phylogenetically, so it kind of made sense. But but um, I, I had a, a lecturer at the Zoo University, sorry, and she was the only zoology um, or terrestrial vertebrate kind of zoologist at the university, and she had a project with Regent Honey Eaters, and that was a critically endangered species, ready to go. And I was really into reptiles, but I was also really into conservation and threatened species, and that's always where I wanted to go. And she had a project ready to go, so I kind of worked with her. For a year, look, looking at the Regent Honey Eaters for my honours my honors work. And my honours work was actually based at Taronga Zoo. So, so the birds I was utilising were actually based here at Taronga Zoo. And that's how I actually got kind of somewhat involved with the zoo. I came over and I, when I was doing my research, I'd occasionally bump into the person who managed the reptile department at the time. And then one day when I was coming across, it was just when I finished my honours work and I was having a chat with him, Dr. Peter Harlow. He was the manager of the reptile and Gideon department. And he let me know there was jobs coming up. There was jobs being advertised at the time to, to be able to, to get onto the, I guess, the casual list to, to get some pick up some shifts here and there if I was interested. And initially, that wasn't my aim. I was keen to follow straight on to a PhD and go up somewhere in the wilds of northern Australia and kind of hang out in the bush for a few years. <laughs> um, but I thought, oh, this, this could be cool for a year or something like that. I'll apply and see how I go kind of thing. The species that they have are, are amazing. They didn't have much in the way of conservation programs. It was just one for the green and golden bell frog. And then all, all of uh, 
Peter's work on Fijian iguanas. He spent at least a month each year in Fiji working on some of the critically endangered iguana species over there and kind of quite an expert in that field. And yeah, sure enough, I applied and I I, I didn't get the job that I applied for, but it worked out perfectly because I, I was eligible for casual work and within within a week I got a call from Pete asking if I could start the following Monday. And I'm like, okay, yep, that sounds awesome. And and I figured I'd do that for a year or so initially. I, I wasn't intending on staying at the zoo for, for long. It was more, I was intending to stay and do some work here because I thought it'd be quite cool, but my intention was always to work on threatened species. But then under Pete, he, he was like quite a good mentor and he was very, very conservation research focused. And we started working with corroboree frogs and then he kind of gave me a lot of free reign to work on threatened species programs and kind of build up threatened species programs. So between the two of us, we kind of expanded upon our programs and kind of I started at Taronga in 2003, January 2003, so quite a while ago now, 18 years ago. In 2006, we started on southern crabby frogs. In 2007, on Buralong frogs. In 2010, we started with yellow-spotted bell frogs. So every year almost, 2009, with northern crabby frogs. So every year almost, we're adding a new threatened species kind of conservation program. So, And that's what's kind of kept, kept me here. <laughs> so it's my interest. So, yeah, ever since I can remember, sorry, gone off on a massive tangent there. I've always been a reptile person. I've always kept reptiles. I'm always being fascinated with reptiles. Any chance I can get to go bush, I'll head out into the bush. Our, our family holidays, other than other than the one I was telling you, we went to the US and we visited a lot of the theme parks and that. Most of our family holidays involve long distance drives around Australia. So so we get in the car and drive right across from the east coast, right across to the west coast and we drove, this is only a couple of years ago, drive right up the west coast to the top west, northwest of Australia, so the opposite side of the country to where we're at, and just checking out all the reptiles, amphibians, bird life, uh, camping, that kind of thing. Wow. So, just so you know, as soon as Australia's back open, you might be getting a visitor. Yeah, <laughs> I no, <laughs> I would experience all that. Oh my gosh, that would be so much fun. There is some amazing places over here. (laughs) I can only imagine. I have not been to that part of the world yet at all. The furthest that way I've been is like India and Nepal. That's the furthest. I have not been, I've not been to New Zealand. I've not been to Australia. I've not been even to Indonesia yet. So yeah. Based on on the species you work with. (laughs) Yeah. So total sense. We we like big cats over here, but we've got a lot of other cool things in place. <laughs> yes, yes. And I've I've really fallen in love with snorkeling too. I have not I have not done any diving. Not that I don't want to, I just haven't had an opportunity. But I would love yeah. to go into some of those beautiful rich oceans around Australia and the islands. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. Yeah. No, it yeah. is incredible. Great Barrier Reef is amazing. On the other side of the country, you've got the Ningaloo kind of region where there's whale sharks and manta rays and all sorts of things over there too. Some, some absolutely amazing. I have snorkeled with whale sharks. It was the first time I ever snorkeled <laughs> in my life. And it was with a whale shark. <laughs> go big awesome. or go home, I guess. <laughs> so. Amazing. 100%. Pick, pick the biggest fish. <laughs> Literally the biggest fish to possibly be in the ocean with. And that it was my first snorkeling experience. <laughs> awesome. Uh, it was it was amazing. And ever since then, I've been completely just in love with that experience. So, yeah, Australia is very high on the list. It's just your biodiversity. I mean, it's an island. Like, there's so much there that I literally haven't seen. And so, mm. Yeah, endemics are incredible. And over here, you, you, you easily see lots of, like, kangaroos and that kind of thing. 
you don't have them jumping down suburban streets typically, but there's tons of them out there. If you head out to any area of bush, you'll see kangaroos, emus, koalas, platypus, echidnas, all those kind of things. You, you travel around the bush enough and you'll see lots of those kind of critters here and there. And some amazing diversity over here. And the snakes, the snakes often get a bad rap because <laughs> we've got some highly venomous snakes in Australia. <laughs> But saying that, we have very few deaths. We have less than three people a year die from snake bite. When you look at places like India or uh, or throughout, I guess, the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, those kind of areas where snake bites are huge and killing tens of thousands of people. In Australia, we, we have less people die from snake bite than in the US. Even, even though we've got some of the most venomous snakes, a lot of them are quite shy. And, and like the most venomous land snake in the world is the, or snake in the world is the inland Taipan or fear snake and it's found out in an area where people don't occupy it. there's a few farm like properties out there but but it's if you're not out there looking for that snake you're very unlikely to ever come across it snakes like brown snakes eastern brown snakes are one that i've had one in my backyard they're number two on the list admittedly and and that bites do occur from them but but if you apply the correct first aid and keep away from them they kind of yeah, i don't know they're more likely to take off than a rattlesnake because a rattlesnake's more of those kind of a sedentary kind of more beast, whereas a, a brown snake is kind of a fast-moving leopard snake, and they'll often get out of your way pretty quick before you you get there. And if they don't get out of your way, then they'll kind of rear up at you and let you know that you get out their way or they may bite. But with our health system and our first aid, it's pretty it's pretty safe. I love it. I love. I just love talking to different people because you talk about snakes the way I talk about like big cats and predators. It's like. Oh, if you just have these different precautions, you're going to be fine. Like, you just got to know their biology and everything like that. And people are like, Brooke, it is a goddamn mountain lion. What are you talking about? You know, I'm sure people look at you the exact same way. They're like, dude, it's a brown snake. What are you talking about? A hundred percent. And I totally feel you there. When I was in the US a few years ago, I was walking around in, I think it was in Arizona. No, it wasn't Arizona. It was in California. But, but but kind of further east, kind of into the desert area. And I, the whole time I was walking around looking for snakes and lizards and stuff, I was just thinking mountain lion, mountain lion, mountain lion. Is there a mountain lion? <laughs> mountain lion. <laughs> to me, it's a predator that could jump on me and eat me. I'll not eat me, but ju- jump on me and kill me. And I don't know anything about them. My lack of knowledge is why. I, I, know when I, was, I was in the US kind of maybe five or ten years earlier, uh, up in the northern part, and uh, once again, I'd gone to a conference. I had an extra couple of days. So I was looking around for local snakes and turtles and stuff, and... And every time I heard a noise, I'm like, is it a bear? <laughs> is the bear, is there a bear there? <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. And if you'd be with me, I'd be like, oh, is it a bear? Is it a bear? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go find it. Yeah. Like, let's, you know what I mean? Like, let's go. Let's go figure 100%. out what it is. What is that noise that we're hearing? Like, let's go track it. Let's find their tracks. Let's tra- like, you know. That- so if you would have been with me, and then also if I would have been with you, we'd be like, oh, look, there's a snake, you know, trail. Let's go yeah. find it. I'd be like, okay. You lead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm following oh, you. <laughs> I, I'd happily pick up a cobra or a taipan or a rattlesnake or whatever it be. But, uh, I'm not in the slightest bit scared of them, whereas something that could potentially overpower and eat me. I, it's just because I know nothing about them. It's the same with sharks. It's one of those things. I, I, I love sharks, but swimming in the open water, not seeing what's under me, like what you mentioned with centipedes before, it just gives me the like, oh. something to eat me. <laughs> it's like, I don't like this. <laughs> yeah. I would die to see you pick up a rattlesnake. If you're like ever out in Colorado and that happens, I'm going to just video the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, beautiful beasts. Uh, yeah, 100%. If I head out there, we'll go out herping, <laughs> find a couple. It's, I've seen five or six species of rattlesnake over in the US now, and every time it absolutely amazes me. Uh, I absolutely love them. Well, we'll go find some. <laughs> I know where they live. I just don't intentionally go find them. So, but we can go yeah. find some. I mean, there's a it's lot of really interesting diversity in the area too. It's just, you know, like the the plains in this area, you know, they're even though they're in vastly important for conservation, they're the least protected. And so everything's getting wiped out, but go see prairie dogs, you know, all, all since they're keystone species, there's like so many different so much wildlife that's around these prairie dog towns. And of course, we could go see some rattlesnakes and maybe depending on where we're at, go find some pronghorn. That would be really cool. Awesome. Yeah. We could find yeah. some cool stuff. <laughs> we'll just go really, really high in elevation. Not, not your 2000 meters. We'll go a little higher than that. <laughs> yep. It's so funny because I just released my episodes uh, this week with Renzen, who studies in the Himalayas. And like his study sites are the peaks of our mountains and i'm just like yep i don't even i can't even comprehend i don't even know what you're talking about what do you mean that you're going to 5000 meters like that's where you study things <laughs> it's, it's got to be cold and difficult to breathe up there <laughs> exactly. it's like you're like hiking up and down to make sure your camera traps are you know without snow because a snowstorm came through and like you're just hiking up and down 5,000 meters oh man that's crazy that's crazy and and where where the step down again like where you live is probably the highest peaks in a, in australia in terms of how <laughs> We're very much a flat country. <laughs> it's just so cool. It's why this. That's why this is so much fun to talk to everybody and just at, at what everybody's doing. So yeah, next time you come out here, or whenever I go to Australia, because you know, it's going to happen. It's not if, it's when, and we will have to go exactly. on a wildlife adventure. Check out some wildlife. Check out some snakes. Oh my god, please! I'll just be following you. Just tell me what to do and what to look for and what not to do. And I will follow lead. <laughs> definitely, definitely. They're all they're all around. It's one of those things too. There's lots where I live, lots locally in my area, but most people don't see them as well. So where we are, there's I think there's snakes everywhere. Because uh, every time I go for a bushwalk, we see often we see snakes. But the same people who walk that same track kind of day after day after day, kind of thing, kind of never see them. It was only a week ago I was walking with with, with the family and we saw a red belly black snake. One of, same species I brought home when I was a kid kind of thing on the side of the track and just sitting there. I brought the kids to only maybe a metre, a metre and a half away from it. And it's a potentially dangerous snake, but if you know its behaviour, it's not going to come after you. It's just going to sit there and bask and then move off if it gets a bit scared. And Cool to look at. So, yeah, if you're around, you'll be able to check those out. And if you feel brave enough, we'll see if you, we'll see if you can become a professional dangerous snake handler. <laughs> we'll see about that. <laughs> I'll watch you a lot and then I will make a decision <laughs> to see <laughs> if I will do that. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. That'll be so much fun. Oh, yeah, and this is going to happen. So in your opinion, since you've lived in Australia all of your life and we, you know, across the world have heard so many things that have happened recently. You know, there's climate change, there's invasive species, there's fires. What do you think is the number one threat to Australian wildlife? Okay, that's a good one. I think overall, 
probably probably invasive predators. Mm. It really depends on what taxa you are. If you're a frog, chytrid fungus, so disease would be. For, for small mammals, uh, undoubtedly introduced predators. Uh, cats and foxes are a huge problem over here. And we, we had a really high extinction rate of, of small mammals, small to medium-sized mammals. Early on, like 100 years ago, we, we lost quite a number of species from cats and foxes. Uh, and even to this day, they're driving some species like, I don't know, you've seen this cute little long-eared, long-nosed animal called the bilby in Australia. It's a neat little marsupial that kind of hops around on the ground. Really cute. Like at Easter time, we have Easter bilbies rather than Easter bunnies over here. And they're, they're really nifty little species, but they're being driven out by, by the cats. So cats and foxes are a huge thing. But then, and on reptiles, small reptiles as well. But then when you look overall, climate change is that big one in the background that's kind of creeping in that we don't know what's the eventual impact like we know which way we're heading in at the moment we've kind of it's becoming drier over here it's becoming hotter it, it is changing areas like we see it with some of our northern crabby frog field sites for example they're becoming hotter and drier for longer and less water in the pools as a result and those kind of issues but what the overall impact that will be on various species i guess we'll be yet to see that's something kind of for the future but that's a big looming one in the background there that's kind of i think will become more apparent in coming years but I'd say I'd say invasive predators are probably the key thing. Uh, oh, of course, land clearing, <laughs> land yeah. clearing, that's something that we've had a lot of in Australia and key habitats, and it's something that's still occurring. Like they're setting up more national parks for protection, but there's certainly still a lot of areas where clearing, even on largely on big large private properties too. So some of our laws regarding what you can clear has been relaxed a little bit in recent times, and as a result, there's more kind of clearing on people's properties, which kind of then form corridors between other areas. So things like your koalas might not be able to move to the next population and so forth. So uh, land clearing has been a big big factor as well. What's driving that market? I guess just increasing population. So mm. uh, increasing population. Most of our country is pretty, pretty deserty. So, so right. when, when you look at Australia, most of the populations are in the key capital centres. And for a big chunk of Australia, it's kind of dry and deserty throughout the kind of central to western parts. But on the east coast, I, I think it's probably just increasing population over time. It's kind of just eroding away at, at, at bushland that's remaining bushland. And we, and we do have a great national park system. There's a national park system throughout Australia, like right throughout Australia, that protects a lot of uh, native lands. But land clearing does. I guess like you, you clear a couple of, I don't know, you clear a couple of areas the size of a, a football ground, for example, and and the amount of animals that occupy that is probably more than most small cats and foxes are going to eat in, in, in a long time. Like it's, it's you're just totally removing habitat. So so that would be one of the big threats as well. So yeah, quite a few <laughs> land clearing, invasive predators, and disease are probably the three key ones over here at the moment. And what do you think will help mitigate those? For those. I'd say land clearing really just tighter restrictions. I think it really has to become tighter restrictions. I know some restrictions were a little bit relaxed in years past when we had big bushfire seasons and big trees close to houses were one of those things that it's like, okay, well, we need to relax that so that way people can clear trees away from the houses to, to, to reduce the risk, which which is valid in terms of it is a risk to human health if there are big trees and bushfire areas, but it just gradually erodes at what bushland there is remaining. And on large farming properties, I guess, farmers wanting to maximise crops and profits, I guess, take, taking out trees, whether or not they manage. Some farmers over here are absolutely amazing. And we've worked with some down on the, 
properties where we have frogs on them and they do very sustainable management of the lands in terms of where they crops and then rest the areas and so forth and so that way they don't exhaust the land but i guess there's a lot of others that probably don't do um the right thing as well so i think i guess regulations and, and legislation regarding land clearing is something that would would be good and in terms of invasive species management i guess it's just coming up with new techniques and technologies it's it's really hard. There's cat and fox baiting and cat and fox targeting in certain areas where there's highly threatened species that if the numbers increase there, they're likely to be massively impacted upon. Uh, things like the bilbies or things like numbats or some of our little kind of small marsupials. But, but um, on a large scale, kind of get, we're never going to eradicate those. It's always going to be kind of local local management of populations to, or like a turtle species where they're the nests we found out with some of the turtle species on the east coast that foxes take out kind of 90% plus of the nests of those species. So it's huge that foxes taking out nests. So in certain areas they're being targeted for, for, for removal, but uh, I don't think much can change that on a larger scale unless unless there is some kind of biotechnology way to do it in the future in, in terms of kind of making it so only produce male offspring or something like that to, 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 to really reduce it in a humane way. And actually have a meaningful impact but but at the moment i don't think there's much available to, to to do that on that kind of scale yeah we're like all in this limbo it's like we see all the problems but not all the solutions are being readily available and it's just like this heart-wrenching like this needs fixed how do we fix it we're still trying to find the answer but we're running out of time and it's just like this constant that's why i drink <laughs> Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Well, you'd be on top of you, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's, like it's pretty daunting when you look at the number of threatened species out there and how many we're going to lose and and how helpless you feel regarding it. But I guess you, you you chew away at it. You do the bit you can to to make a difference, and other people do the bits they can. And hopefully, and we all have drinks. <laughs> hopefully, we'll, we'll end up in a better position. Yeah, hopefully more cheerful, cheering, cheering, cheerful drinks. Hopefully in the future. <laughs> so, <laughs> on that note, you know, talking about drinks and, and struggles and stuff like that, and your journey so far, because I mean, you've you've seen quite a bit. You've seen species almost get lost. You have seen species get, go gone. They're just gone now. What would you say has been your biggest struggle so far? Um, I I don't know. I'm a pretty positive person. So, so, so for me, it's, and I'm also like, even, even like that bell frog, for example, that disappeared and we had kind of a small number remaining here at the zoo that we had to, we didn't breathe, they were going to go extinct. Even that should be a, quite a stressful situation. It is kind of a high pressure situation. But even then, I, I wouldn't say I, 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 I struggled through it. It's one of those things you're doing the best you can and, and involving any, anyone that's relevant to get expertise and so forth. I think seeing species obviously disappear and, and not having a clear path forward to bring them back is is a struggle, but I'm pretty optimistic. I'm optimistic that we'll, we'll, we'll nail it. And with each of those species, we'll get around we'll get around the threats long-term that they're impacting on them. So, so overall, I'd say minimal struggle. <laughs> I love your mindset. I love no, your mindset. It's, 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 not, it's not common to find anymore, and it's quite refreshing. You know, we've all, we've all been through things, but still. It's the only way to get through this. Like you have to be hopeful. You just, you just have, you just have to. It's like, yes, I'm very aware what the risks are. I'm, I'm fully aware. But if I don't hope that it can get better, then, then why, why go to work every day? Why do what we do every day? 
why get up? Why why press? You know, like get up when my alarm gets off, goes off. If it, if this, if there was no hope that it would get better. So that's that's exactly right. Am I seeing species about to disappear or go extinct or right on the edge of a brink? I'd I'd prefer to see that more of as as a challenge kind of thing rather than a rather than a dire situation. It is a dire situation, but rather than see it as a oh no kind of thing, we're about to lose this kind of thing. It's like no, well, let's do what we can to set something up kind of thing and. And see how we go from there, even if there's no clear path forward yet. But no, you're, you're exactly right. It's mm. as long as you're taking a step forward, that's the best thing. Always one step forward, even if you take a few steps back, it's okay. Just as long as we just keep going in the right direction. That's it. <laughs> Depending on how many drinks you've had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you might be stumbling here or there. Might take a few lateral yeah. moves, but you know, we got a destination. We're <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So. You just have so much great experience and this wonderful outlook on everything. What would you like to say to anybody listening? What advice would you like to share or mindset or anything that you would just like to say? Yeah, oh, I don't know. I, I guess don't take anything personally when it comes to kind of conservation. Conservation wins. It's one of those things that we're not always going to achieve what we want to achieve and bring species back. Uh, and for those wanting to get into the field, I reckon go for it. The, the, the more people we have, working on threatened species and solutions to, to species management, whether, whether it's pest species management, whether it's disease research, whether it's community conservation, conflict, kind of wildlife conflict issues. The more people we have working on in those areas, the, the, the better. And there's always scope. There's always work to be done. There's, there's so many research questions out there to, to kind of get on top of. Yeah, I, I reckon hit it and don't don't take things too personally <laughs> or, 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 or like it's a failure on yourself if something doesn't work because as we know with reintroduction biology with threatened species management all those kind of things there's so many failures and, and like for example you might reintroduce an animal and bell frogs are an example we released 20 of those bell frogs uh, a couple of years ago I, I put radio transmitters on 20 of them and spent a few weeks down on the property kind of monitoring them and, and i was expecting them to survive for quite some time and then to be impacted by chytrid fungus and then slowly drop off due to chytrid fungus. And that was kind of my expectation going into that. And then I released them and in the first week, nine of them got, got eaten. Uh, <laughs> six by black snakes, two by kookaburras and one by a fox. And it's like, I did not expect predation to be the, the key thing in that first week. I, I expected <laughs> maybe a couple, but so yeah, every time you do something, you learn from it. I, I, once again, I didn't take that to heart. For me, it's like, ah, uh, bugger, bugger for the frogs. But bugger for the sample size from my, from my research project because <laughs> they, they, they're gone. But I've learned something from it as well. So, so it's, one of, it's one of those things that you're always learning. There's going to be lots of factors, but don't take it personally. Take them as a challenge. Fantastic advice. That was awesome. <laughs> so I have taken up so much of your morning. You've been with me for almost two hours now, and I'm so grateful. So, but... If anybody wants to get in contact with you, what is the best way? Sure. Uh, either through email at Taronga Zoo in Sydney, uh, mmcfadden at, at zoo.nsw.gov.au, or I've got an Instagram account. You can jump on Instagram. I think it's Macca's Wildlife Picks or Macca's Wildlife Shots. I don't have to check that. But, but I, should, I, should know, I should know what my own <laughs> page is. That, that Macca's Wildlife Shots on Instagram. So you can check that out as well. It's mostly reptile and amphibian photos, but you can contact me through there as well. Awesome. And as I always say, if anybody reaches out to me and wants to get in contact with you, I'll make sure that I hook you up. So 
Thanks so much, Michael. This has been so much fun. I cannot wait to get this out to the world. No worries. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Isn't Michael one of the nicest people of all time? And don't you just want to get on a plane and go to Australia right now? Oh, I know I do every single time I listen to this episode in our conversation together. But for today's question, I would love to ask you all this. What are the biggest threats to nature in your area? What rewilding projects are proposed or underway to reverse habitat loss and ecosystem degradation? Awesome. Hit me up wherever you like to chat. I can't wait to hear from you. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.